Why is it even important? When a president refers to his mandate, he is essentially justifying his position on any given subject. After all, the voters voted him into the position of president because of these very positions. Why should we care? What relevance, if any, does a president's mandate have once they're in power and the real politics begins? Who has used mandate rhetoric best? How do different forms of communication affect the use and effectiveness of mandate rhetoric? I'm Martin Beanie, and you're listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. Julia Azari has studied mandate rhetoric as part of her research as assistant professor of political science at Marquette University. In 2014, we published her book, Delivering the People's Message, The Changing Politics of the Presidential Mandate. With President Trump using Twitter and campaign-style speeches to spread his message, we thought it was a good time to ask her about her research and what we might be seeing in the current political climate and maybe what we might expect in the future. Well, welcome, Julia. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I've been uh, checking out your uh, your book, which is uh, Delivering the People's Message. Uh, came out a few years ago now, but um, I thought the uh, this idea of uh, mandate rhetoric was really kind of uh, topical still, or maybe even more so and, and interesting. So tell us a little bit about what that is. What is mandate rhetoric? So I interpreted the idea of mandate rhetoric a little bit more broadly than some treatments have done in the past. And what I did was I looked at presidential communications and looked at each time a president, either verbally or in some cases in writing, used the election result or campaign promises either to justify what something they were doing or tried to interpret what the election had meant. So those are the two kind of dominant strains of things that I looked for. And I looked at at about 1,500 communications in my book from presidents from Hoover up through Obama's first term. So as you know, the book came out in 2014, so it doesn't cover post, um, post-2012, but I, I do have that data. <laughs> is, is, it, um, is that data dramatically different, or, or did it continue along the same sort of lines? So... In the wake of the 2012 election, Obama uh, did not use a lot of mandate rhetoric. And I have I actually wrote a paper about it with a co-author, Justin Vaughn, where we look at Obama's interpretation of both 2012 and then the 2014 midterms. Um, and, you know, 2012 is kind of an interesting case because Obama was one of the first presidents in American history to win re-election, but to lose some of the, the vote share, um, usually when presidents get reelected, they, they pick up more votes and they have a stronger electoral victory than the, the past time. And then if they lose um, support, they usually lose the election. Hmm. Obama really, is really unique in that regard. Um, the only two other presidents in that to, to do that are uh, Grover Cleveland, the third time he, was, um, he ran for office, 1892, and, um, and FDR also the third time. Um, he did that. So, you know, otherwise either they lose or they pick up support. So Obama, I think, uh, you know, understandably kind of backed off of mandate claims because of that. And I also think that there's a really important event 
that occurs not long after Obama is reelected in 2012, and that is the the Newtown shooting, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, and that shifted the the focus of the new administration or the the you know, newly inaugurated administration. Obama really pushed for gun control, and there was really no way to link that to the campaign because the event was was after the after the election. So I think that had that not happened, we might have seen. Um, a different approach, but I also think in that case the electoral context was significant. Right. So um, you said that you know typically you you would see the second term uh, a jump in numbers. Did you do you also typically see uh, an increase in mandate rhetoric in second term presidents as a result of that, or a, or a decrease because they're confident and easy, you know, to they've, they've got their they've got their mandate essentially. Right. Usually the latter. So it, it varies. Um, there are some idiosyncratic features with each with each presidential term. Um, and actually, one of the things that's that's kind of interesting is when you really start thinking about it um, over the course of time that I surveyed, you actually don't have all that many second term presidents. Mm-hmm. Um, you only got, I think, without Obama, because I didn't have a second term in my book. I think you've only got four. Hmm. Um, or something like that, or five with yeah, FDR. Yeah. So, is that right? So Sounds right. <laughs> yeah, Obama was the fifth president to leave under the 22nd Amendment. So, yeah, so, that'd be, so there's five. So it's hard to say, well, here's the trend. You know, there's just there's mm. not that many observations. Um, but it did vary. So Reagan, for example, Reagan was about the same um, in both cases. He, he tended to talk about the election a fair amount. Um, for George W. Bush, it was quite different. He talked more about the election in 2001 than you would expect, given what that election outcome was. But then a whole lot in 2005, he was a very prolific mandate claimer. Um, so it kind of it kind of varied. Um, typically, though, the the mandate has been linked to um, to kind of the way I argue the way I argue it. The mandate is linked to the the presentation of a clear choice. Um, it's linked to polarization and also to the need to establish authority. And both of those things tend to be a little bit shakier in that in the first term. Those tend to be things that you need to make more of a an effort to establish in the second term. Um, and so, or excuse me, in the first term. So that that's kind of I think the thread that runs through it. But as I said, the pattern itself is not as, as clear cut because there's just so many factors and not so many. Hmm. A couple of things. It's the the idea of this prolific mandate claimer. I like that. That's a <laughs> it's an interesting way of uh, of looking at a president. Um, so I'm really curious because you just said that the three kind of things: the clear choice, the polarization, and establishing authority. And of course, you know, my mind's immediately taken to the the, the current president, the new president. Uh, and I'm obviously you probably don't have any em- empirical data. You haven't done that that kind of research, but just kind of like you know, off the top of your head. How how is President Trump and mandate rhetoric, or how how is that being linked right now? Do you think? So thus far, I would say it's actually been, you know, it's really fit in with what my theory predicted. So I have not updated my data set to include Trump's um, speeches in the public papers. I plan on it. Um, I also need to figure out how to how to address his tweets. Um, since they are not covered by the Presidential Records Act, they're sort of just out there. They can be deleted at will. Hmm. Um, but a lot, so a lot of the mandate rhetoric in tweets, this is what I've observed just kind of looking at the data. A lot of the mandate rhetoric is either in tweets or that's been in, in um, 
verbal conversations that I have heard illustrate exactly what I said in my book, which is that when presidents are oppressed, when their authority is challenged, when their agenda is challenged, the idea of, well, I was elected to do this, or I received all these votes, um, is, is something that they use to defend themselves. And Trump has actually taken that to a further degree than I had, than I found anyone else doing in the book, which is, as we've all seen, specifically when, you know, when he's pressed on his agenda, he will say things, or sometimes surrogates say things like, well, our, our approach is vindicated by the fact that we won, or I won all these electoral college votes. And, you know, they'll use that directly in response to, um, to challenges. And then one thing that I found was interesting is I started to kind of look and take a preliminary look at some of Trump's less, less uh, prominent speeches. So his weekly addresses, some speeches that he's given when he's um, out on, you know, traveling around. And there the mandate rhetoric is actually very similar to what I've observed in previous administrations since the, you know, since the late, uh, since the early eighties, maybe, um, which is, this idea of, well, you elected me to do this, and so now I'm going to do it. And this is the reason why I was elected. And just drawing on that, drawing on that rhetoric, you see that a lot starting, really starting with Jimmy Carter. You don't see a whole lot of that before that. Um, I didn't see a lot of politicians saying, well, the reason I was elected is to do this. You sent me here to do this, and now I'm going to do it. Um, that's a real shift. And I see Trump doing that, and also doing that in ways that, at least as, as you're reading the speech, are very similar to, to previous presidents. So on the one hand, we think of Trump as this very unusual communicator, and that's really true. But then I also found this very typical strain and very frequent um, strain of, of mandate claims. And then finally, I guess I would say that just looking at the basic factors around the administration, the loss of the popular vote and you know, very low levels of popularity and the deep polarization, all of those are things that I link with the rise of increased use of mandate rhetoric to, to justify and shore up authority. And so, the, so far what I've seen is the Trump presidency um, totally validate my theory, which is not something many political scientists can claim. So <laughs> I, I'm kind of proud of that. So it sounds as though we're going to need um, an update in a few years' <laughs> time to include the second Obama uh, administration and then... Uh, the Trump administration, um, especially taking into account kind of yeah, the, the new models of communication. Um, mm -hmm. So he kind of fits into what you projected. Who, who's done this most effectively, do you think, in terms of presence? Who's, who's used mandate rhetoric most effectively, if you can quantify that? Sure. So, I, you know, I did not quantify that in the book. Um, again, I think things like legislative success are really... Um, are influenced by a lot of different factors, and mandate rhetoric is only part of that. I do think that um, that probably the most effective president to do that is the one who's on the cover of the book, and that's Ronald Reagan. And that's not so much in terms of raw legislative success, but in the sense that people really understand the 1980 election as having been about a specific thing, having been about a specific set of ideas, and then subsequently the use of um, of those kinds of claims uh, by, to some extent, by George H.W. Bush and then very much by George W. Bush, these very on-message claims. Like Republicans tend to be very on-message in their mandate claims. And again, this doesn't include Trump because I haven't looked systematically. But Reagan and the Bushes, 
very on message, very focused. It's all about the economy, philosophy, economic ideas. Democrats, not as focused. They will claim mandates for a much wider variety of usually small issues. Um, and so I think, and I do find that that starts with, with Reagan. So in that sense, in terms of, of changing the rhetorical conversation and really developing a persuasive narrative of an election that's persisted you know, now for 37 years, I would say Reagan is the most hmm. effective. So you know, I think sometimes we think of rhetoric, or at least maybe I do, um, as a part of performance in a way. So was, was Reagan uh, successful be- with that partly because of his um, background? That's, you know, that's an interesting question. I think that's possible. I think that that's, you know, a lot of people have written about Reagan's ability to use media and rhetorical skill and to, to kind of make himself believable. So that's that's also possible. And it's interesting when you contrast that with um, his predecessor, Jimmy Carter, who often tried to, to communicate in ways that were complicated and nuanced. And I really loved researching Carter, and I found that he did a lot of this, too, where he, he talked about what I was elected to do, and he was, as I said, kind of a real turning point in the book, um, but isn't known nearly as much for that, and I think it's because his, his communication was less compatible with a, you know, specifically with a kind of televised speech approach. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if you do go back uh, in a few years' time, just to see how somebody who is viewed as being so different in communication style uh, with the current president, you know, how, how that sort of pans out and works into the, the, uh, the way people perceive it, at least. Um, well, Julie, I really, really appreciate you uh, chatting with us about this. There's some really fascinating ideas in there. So thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Take care, bye-bye. That was Julia Azari. Assistant Professor of Political Science at Marquette University and author of Delivering the People's Message, The Changing Politics of the Presidential Mandate. You can find her book and all our others at cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you'd like to save 30% on Julia's book, visit the site and enter 09POD when you check out. You've been listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.